Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Today, we bring you an amazing podcast with a one-of-a-kind guest, Dr. Timothy Hewitt. Man, we've had some accomplished people on the podcast before, and I'm talking Harvard professors, uh, NFL Hall of Famers. We've had some fantastic people. The resume of Dr. Timothy Hewitt can stack up to anyone. Okay, I'm going to give it a shot here. Tim Hewitt is former director of the Biomechanics Laboratories and Sports Medicine Research Center at the Mayo Clinic and director of the Sports Health Performance Institute at the Ohio State University. He's also professor and director of sports medicine research at OSU, professor and director of sports medicine biodynamics center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and Research Foundation. And I'm already tired of talking uh, and, I, and I'm about one line into this guy's bio. We're gonna paste the rest of it in the show notes, but let me just say this. He's an absolute expert in his field. He's a genuinely good guy. I enjoyed talking to him very much. And his specialties align with a lot of what we're doing. He's, he specializes in pediatric and adult sports medicine. Uh, he's he's a, a program director in physiology, biophysics, biomechanics. And the things that he was posting online is what sort of drew our attention to him. Maybe this is people are aware of this. I, I, I certainly assume they are. But a couple weeks back in the NFL, we saw a real spike in ACL injuries and uh, Achilles tendon injuries. And, and people were like, what the heck is going on? Well, that's one of the topics we get into today. Dr. Timothy Hewitt has some ideas. And uh, I, I, I chime in a little bit too. But, but he's certainly the guy that we lean on. He knows a lot more than I do. So um, I, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And we are actually, we're already in talks of, of having Dr. Hewitt on again. So like the episode, subscribe, share it with friends, but most of all, enjoy today's conversation with Dr. Timothy Hewitt. Yeah, so, so basically I'm working with several companies, institutions, military outfits, and, and basically what we're trying to do is take I use the term preventive biomechanics, take what's known, what we have a background in and use it to try to risk stratify athletes. Hmm. So the goal is to risk stratify and then use targeted interventions to reduce risk of injury in athletes and everything from everyday recreational athletes to school kids to collegiate athletes, pro athletes, military athletes. Hmm. And, you know, I, I've spent a fair amount of time over in Israel and it was interesting, you know, 20 years ago, I started lecturing over there and always their sports medicine meetings where I would lecture are actually sports medicine and military medicine meetings. And the military people really are athletes with major musculoskeletal issues. It's one of the main reasons that uh, military personnel are not active and, mm -hmm. and, you know, not on their, what you'd call their active roster. So we've moved over into that area as well, working with, with uh, several individuals and organizations trying to take advantage of what we know and leverage it to, to make athletes more productive, healthier, and safer. 
I think it's an amazing mission and I appreciate you doing that, especially uh, within the military population. I, I wonder if people recognize the, the truth of that, that these are athletes who run, carry, throw, jump, all, all these things, change direction. Um, I think that's, that's noble work. That's amazing. Incredible, incredible challenges in those athletes, no doubt. There's, um, okay, so can you tell me a bit more about this risk stratify strategy? That's a really interesting idea to me. Yeah, so, you know, it, it's, I, I use the analogy of um, meteorology. So the idea is prediction. Well, none of us have a crystal ball, right? Mm -hmm. So they, we were attacked on several fronts because we've published many papers about figuring out who's at risk, who's at relatively high risk. Well, different groups around the world, you know, used our techniques, had success with them, but they said, well, our success is high, not high enough. It's not a hundred percent. We don't know. We can't predict which athlete is going to have which specific injury. Well, right. that's obvious. That was obvious to us. You know, when we published those papers, we had several high level biostatisticians on our teams and they used the word predict. You know, it's like a meteorologist is going to say, well, I predict that there's going to be a storm later today. Right. Well, prediction is there's a lot of uh, subtle influences. There's a lot of confounding variables. No one can predict the future. That's not possible. However, if you have good data, and that's the important part of it, if you have good data, you can use that data to risk stratify individuals to say who's at relative greater risk based on what we already know. Hmm. And this is for, for example, we hypothesized back after the, the first NFL lockout by the owners of the players we said there's a relatively increased risk of injury and there was a bump in injuries. The, the problem is people don't really understand from a biostatistical standpoint, the NFL, that seems like a large group of individuals. That's a tiny group of individuals and to right. draw statistical conclusions is difficult. Hmm. Following that, soon after that, in 2011, 2012, there was the NBA lockout. And again, we made a prediction saying the risk has gone up for multiple reasons, fitness, conditioning, rapid jumps in load, the lack of the connection between the medical and um, physical therapy, athletic training, strength coach teams and the athletes is, is gotten large and it's, it's happened over a long time. That's going to relatively increase their risk and ACL injuries jumped. Mm. So we, we recently made a couple more predictions. Uh, one was relative to we're working with a group down in Melbourne, Australia, Julian Feller, Kate Webster, the, the group there where they, we were discussing this issue of, AFLW, which is 
Australian rules football for women. Well, mm -hmm. Australian rules football, for example, let's go with data. And that's what we try to go with is one of the highest risks. So say in women's collegiate basketball and women's collegiate soccer, their risk of a, an ACL injury is around, let's say 0.3 to 0.4, uh, injuries per thousand athletic mm -hmm. exposures, which is a practice or match. Right. Well, if you look at men's AFL, Aussie rules football, their risk is about one. It's more than double what wow. a woman on a collegiate pitch or court is. That's really high. Yeah. Well, they proposed this new AFLW league and Julian and Kate and I were sitting around and we were saying, this is going to be a disaster if you think about it, because women have an increased risk of ACL tears that's somewhere between two and six times higher. Hmm. Let's say on average three to four times higher, depending on the sport. So we predicted that there was going to be a large increase once these women uh, started playing AFL, there was going to be a huge bump in ACL injuries. Well, there was, and we have the data for that. For example, the, the risk is about per thousand exposures around eight to 10. Holy so God. it's an enormous, so it's, it's, you know, in the range of anywhere of 20 to 60 times women yeah. in playing basketball or, or soccer, it's enormous. And, you know, we tried to, we've actually tried to publish that. We actually thought we had it accepted. We had an editor's, okay, this is really important. I'm going to publish it. But it got, it was politically incorrect to say it because you shouldn't be saying, well, women are different than men or they have different risk levels. Wait, wait, well, wait, we're wait. Just, what, How, can you explain? <laughs> Tell me more in, about that. In the current environment, in in the current environment we're living in, yeah, you almost can't say anyone's different than anybody because somebody's going to have some political motive to say, no, it, you can't say that because we don't want women to be different than men. Well, I mean, risk is different. It's, it's reality. Now, that, that's not to say we don't think we're doing this we're trying to figure out the science and we're trying to get this published so that in order, what I said is the follow-up is targeted interventions. Mm -hmm. And I've been right. working for more than 25 years trying to reduce risk in women who want to play sports. I want women to be out and girls to be out there participating in sports as much as possible for their health reasons. They get, you know, the psychological health, physical health, sports are important for women and girls to be playing, but we still have to look at the baseline of where the risk lies in order to risk stratify so then mm -hmm. that we can target interventions. Now, the latest kind of controversial prediction that we made was relative to this post-COVID issues and coming back from COVID. And this one is less controversial most people buy into it. I don't know why, because we don't really have data behind it. This right. is, you know, you know, everyone's using this term, um, 
that it's unprecedented. Well, this isn't actually unprecedented. It happened mm -hmm. back in 1917 to 1919, actually, a, a similar type of coronavirus. And now we know that things were altered. I saw a pretty cool picture. It was actually based out of Chicago and out of Northwestern. They showed uh, a game with what it looked like in 1918 and what it looks like now. Basically, now the stands are almost completely empty, whereas then they were all, you know, mostly everyone was wearing masks and they yeah. weren't social distancing. I mean, we're learning. We've learned sure. a little bit over the last hundred years. Right. But we made the prediction before the NFL came back, oh boy, there's going to be a lot of injuries just because, as you know, strength coaches, physical therapists, athletic trainers, team physicians, they get a team ready and a player off on their own, you know, sure, maybe they're training at a gym, but it's, it's not the same. And right. so the prediction was there's going to be a lot of injuries. Now, we were actually with the NFL, we were surprised because like in the same thing in, in the Bundesliga in Germany, there was a huge bump in hamstrings, a lot of soft tissue muscle mm -hmm. injuries, hamstring injuries appear to be way up. Now, again, it's, it's tough to draw conclusions from that because, again, it's a whole league, but the end is still relatively low. You're, you're talking about in 20 plus hamstring injuries but right. you know how do you what do you compare that to so so you have to have you know doing epidemiology getting the the ratio right you're you're always looking at the numerator which is number of injuries but then you have to have the denominator which is amount of exposure now that amount of exposure varies a lot from season to season and especially when you are coming in post covid because yeah. For example, the preseason has been totally altered right. and the in season is getting altered. And then to jump over to the NFL, we were surprised because there was a lot of soft tissue injuries in the NFL early on, with tons of hamstrings injuries. But we really didn't see that big jump in ACLs. We only had about 11. And that through through pre it's it's interesting. It, what remains consistent in the NFL is the number of ACL injuries in the preseason versus the number of ACLs in season. And that stays pretty consistent. And that stays usually somewhere between, say, 23 to 26 in each. So you see mm -hmm. around 23 to 26 ACL injuries in the preseason, around 23 to 26 ACLs in the postseason. Well, we got into season one and there were only around eight, nine. When we got into game one preseason, there were only around eight, nine ACL injuries. And we said, well, what's going on? Well, that's the end, the number of injuries, but the exposure was really low. Right, it right. Did very, very little in the preseason. Well, once we get into in season and this disastrous last Sunday yeah. where, oh, you know, I have several colleagues around the world who track this. We've been tracking this with a friend of mine named Rob Hype. Uh, Rob, his father was the Bengals team doc, and then Rob was the, the team doc. I mean, for 30-plus years, been tracking this 
since the eighties. And then there are other groups like, uh, uh, the, the ACL groups on, on Twitter that we follow and they do a really good job. And that group's been following since 2013, very carefully, the number of ACL injuries, never have they seen in a single day in the NFL, seven ACL ruptures. I mean, that's unbelievable. That, that number is just astronomical. And now people are starting to listen and say, wow, that, you, you know, this, this number is enormous and something needs Something's to be done. Up something and, and, is up there. And then, uh, and, and then am I right to think that Achilles ruptures are, are, are they also? Achilles ruptures are up there. Again, we're two games in and we have eight Achilles ruptures in the NFL. And, the, the, you know, again, ACLs and Achilles ruptures are season ending at, at least. At least, some, right. Some Achilles ruptures and, and some ACL ruptures, too. People don't realize this are not only season ending, they're career ending. Right. So Achilles significantly altering, especially if it, speeds your game or uh, uh, no, no doubt. No doubt. Just, and, and so what's, what's apparent is, and I'm working on a paper with a, with a group, I'm on a scientific advisory board and we're trying to figure this out. And just right now there's, there's six of us and we're just brainstorming on, okay, it look, this looks real, even though again, from an epidemiologic standpoint, we can count the end, but it's, it's really difficult with all with COVID, with all the confounding variables. It's right. really difficult to get that denominator, the underlying exposure. Um, but given that, given that lack uncertainty in those areas, it, it seems to be real that we're having yep. again seven ACLs and and one single day in the NFL, eight Achilles tendon injuries over two games. It just seems really crazy. Now, could it be occurring by chance? Yes. Sure. Is it, does it appear to be real? It does. Right. So then you start to ask the questions, what are the mechanisms for this? And that there's several potential mechanisms, lack of, fitness, mm-hmm. lack of conditioning, however you want to differentiate between those two. Right. Then loading, going from relatively low load to relatively high load very yep. rapidly. There's lots of other issues, exposure, preparation, the, the lead up with the medical teams, preparing the athletes and having even exposure to that whole system, the athletic trainers, the physical therapists, the strength coaches, the physicians, which they haven't had nearly as much of. And then preparation in the time of COVID, you know, running around wearing a mask and social distancing and, and all these issues, you're, you're altering your body's physiology and your body's level of preparation for, landing, cutting, dealing with forces on the body and that, that we can't even measure. And we don't know what, what the underlying effects of those, all those different variables are. Can I throw out um, a guess? 
So, so I, I'd, I'd love to hear. Please throw out as many guesses as you want. Uh, well, I think you, I think you already nailed it. And I think it, so, so a lot of uh, my work is in strength and conditioning. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really happy to, to be part of it. I, I, I run this, for any listener who's heard the podcast before I apologize, but, but um, we, we, I, the program that I run has been recognized nationally. We move more than 2000 athletes through one of the nation's largest strength and conditioning programs. And we've had um, a humbling degree of success and we're really proud of it, mostly because we know that we're doing a lot more than just training bodies, but we are training bodies and we want people to perform. Um, it is what you're saying and what we've seen in the NFL. Uh, it, it just so happens that it aligns with a push in, um, in Illinois, I'm here in Illinois, uh, from coaches to have football <clears throat> reinstated. The, the, the theory, and I'll get, I'll get back to my ultimate idea here, but um, everyone's saying, well, look, the, the states around us have opened, they're playing football, COVID cases don't seem to be a, a huge deal. Uh, can't we just go back on what we said and play like an abbreviated season? We're so excited to play. And, and I, without being like a naysayer, I keep being like, hey, folks, I, I get it. I get it, but I don't think you understand that 90% of the young people that you're talking about are completely detrained. They, they've been away from, from practice, from, from a barbell, from anything, any significant stimulus for, for eight weeks plus. You know, that is, and, and that's, that's only assuming that uh, whatever high school you're at um, had the initiative and the facilities and, and, and the leadership to put together some kind of summer training program. The same, um, the same thing, exact same thing just happened for Minnesota for us. It? So yeah, they just, the governor just gave clearance to play, but yeah, I mean, what have these kids been doing for the last two months? And again, I don't want to be a naysayer and I don't, and I hope I'm wrong, but like you were mentioning, I like the terminology. Um, I think I have a good prediction. And I think if you throw hundreds, if not thousands of untrained athletes out there and bang them together, uh, you're going to see an increased frequency. Like you said, just based on uh, injuries over exposures, I think the frequency is going to be much higher than any other year. And I think we are forgetting that. I would, I would agree with you. I, I, I predict the same finding in Illinois and, and Minnesota. Yeah. They, if anything, they should have just continued three through disrupting it was, was not a good idea. And right. it's, it's going to, there, there's going to be a kickback. I would, I would guess maybe not. It's again, it's a prediction, but we'll see. I, I love that you're being careful though, because I, yeah, I'm with you and I, maybe I'll be less careful. I'll be the, the, I'll, I'll, I'll risk being wrong, but like, how, how could it not? How could it not? Let's assume you had a, have a good strength and conditioning program in your school. Well, like we are planning to peak on, in February because of the adjusted season. So now, you know, we, we heard that there are going to be protests and rallies and now we're being told, well, wait a minute, we got to put the, the gas pedal down because we might need these guys to play in three weeks. So are we gonna load them harder, run them harder? Like, you know, is that the expectation? That, that's not really how it works. That's not how you accumulate a positive training effect over time. It, it's, uh, so it's a little, um, you know what it is? I'll be, I'll be optimistic. Um, 
it, it shows me that there's a great opportunity, especially at the high school level, where there are millions of young people in the, this incredible learning environment. There, there's great opportunity there for uh, a more thorough commitment on behalf of the schools to strength and conditioning. And like you mentioned, in alignment with whatever sports medicine is going on on campus and coaches and, uh, mm-hmm. and some sort of system like that. It's, it's ethically, it's probably the only way to do it. Well, it, it's been problematic because of this whole COVID thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of school systems have laid off or completely eliminated their strength and conditioning staff and their athletic training staffs in the high school. Now, they may be bringing them back, mm-hmm. but again, you you have a at least a, a two-month lapse Right. of the exposure to these people and, and the really crucial roles they play in this team setting. It, it's scary for them. It's really scary for them. The ones that haven't had or may not even continue to have a, a well-trained strength conditioning staff and an athletic training staff. That's just, to me, the thought of that is absolutely frightening. I agree with you. I wonder, is there any paper that you know of, or is any, anyone even just out on there, there on Twitter collecting numbers that, would, that might have data on injury rate at schools that don't have that kind of support compared to schools? Yes, yes. The National Athletic Training Association has collected that data, and they, they published that. Oh, that, it was in the last one to two years demonstrating mm-hmm the significantly increased risk of injuries in those populations that don't have those staffs on hand. That's been clearly demonstrated. Yeah. That would have been published in the Journal of Athletic Training over the last couple of years. I'm looking it up. I'm making notes right here. Uh, I'm always interested, and and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like, what do you think the the major lever a school or an organization, uh, what would be the major lever when it comes to like uh, you know investing more in this side of things? What because it, it, it's not well, here's, pure here's sadly here's sadly so I can I can tell you I can yeah. give you a, a personal example. Galesburg, Illinois, I where the well. link where the Lincoln Douglas debates occurred. Uh, this was many years ago now, and and this is problematic because when do you call in the national ACL risk reduction guy? Do you call him when everything's going well? Right, (laughs) right. You call him when the the coach, the the girls basketball coach in the high school has had five ACL tears in on his basketball team of 15 girls. And wow. so they're, you know, they're ready to run this guy out of town. What are you doing to our yeah. athletes? Called us in, we came in, put a program together, got it instituted. And with within the next three years after we followed them, no ACL tears. And in the third year after they won the state championship. I was going to say, girls, Galesburg High School basketball on the girls' side is a dominant program. Yeah, correct, yeah. correct. But it's not dominant if five of your <laughs> right. players are out with ACL tears. Yeah. So that I think 
that's an important part of selling this to the districts, to the coaches. And this is one of the reasons I'm talking to you why it's so important is we've got to get the word out that this kind of neuromuscular training that we do, this targeted neuromuscular training, not only does people don't find it suit risk reduction is not, I don't even call it prevention because I don't think prevention is a good word because in order to prevent something from happening, you happening, you actually do have to be able to predict it, which mm -hmm. we can't a specific injury in a specific athlete can't be predicted. So it can't right. be prevented. So I call it risk reduction. Plus I think from a legalistic liability standpoint, it's better. You start telling people, Oh, we're going to prevent. I didn't go into Galesburg and say, we're going to prevent all right. your ACL injuries. Our goal is to reduce risk of those injuries. And then mm -hmm. I think people understand that and you don't put yourself in as great a liability position because there's always going to be ACL injuries. You just want to sure. reduce them. So, but that's not very sexy when, when you talk to even the parents are always concerned, but even that risk reduction doesn't sound all that great. But when you right. say, look, we're going to get in here and we're going to implement a strong neuromuscular training program and your kids are going to be better athletes. And I can tell you, even at a school like that, which is a good, you know, dominant school in a certain sport, I can make that school better mm -hmm. in that sport. I can guarantee you that, especially young female athletes who haven't had a lot of exposure to neuromuscular training, strength training, plyometric training, you start them, you start teaching them body control, acceleration, deceleration, especially frontal plane balance. Uh, it, they're they're going to be, I can flat out tell you, I've measured it. I can show it. I've published it many times over. They're yep. better athletes too. So that's what you, that's what you sell to the district. Cause that, that's what, the, you know, overall, even the, the athletics directors, the athletic directors do care and they, they want their athletes to be safe, no sure. doubt, but it's, it's not sexy. It's hard for them to sell. So you give them more sales marketing information to say, I can tell you straight out, your athletes are going to be better too. You're going to have a better, yep. better athletes. Therefore you're going to have a better team. I'm, I'm really encouraged to hear you say that because I, I think speaking freely, that's, that's how we approach our uh, workshops and things like that as well, where we do, we try to do like character development workshops and things of that nature. Uh, everyone, it seems like everyone wants that, or they, you know, they, they say they want that in their hearts, they probably do, but they don't bring you in until there's a recognition that there can be a performance boon. Um, otherwise it's just not, um, Compelling unless, unless you've had, and, and I can tell you, you know, I've been brought in by big, you know, national, international, you know, like the IOC of, of like uh, uh, WAGS, which is Washington area girls soccer, like where they have yep. 30,000 plus young wow. female soccer players. They bring you in because every one of those girls has at least two or three friends that have ruptured their ACL right. and they've seen what they've gone through and they don't want that to happen to them. And especially their parents don't want that to happen to them. And the coaches, the reality, again, going back to that, I'm not going to have a very good team if my two or three of my starters aren't playing for me. 
Yeah. So, yeah. so you have to you have to leverage all that information and knowledge to to really be effective and to get to get this instituted. For example, we published papers in the late nineties, ninety six and ninety nine, where we showed you could reduce the incidence of ACL injuries with neuromuscular training by fifty percent in all athletes, by two thirds, sixty seven percent in female athlete non-contact ACL injuries. We redid that with Kate Webster, a meta-analysis of all the meta-analyses done in the literature. So this is a massive undertaking. And we showed exactly the same thing 20 years later. Overall, 50% risk reduction of ACL injuries, 67%, two-thirds reduction of non-contact ACL injuries in females. But still, it's not instituted. People don't do it. If they if they try to do it, they're not the coaches are not compliant with it. Right. Meaning they don't do most of it. Uh, if we know if it's presented to the players, they are adherent to it. They will do it if presented to them, but very often it's not. Hmm. And then you know there's timing issues, and we understand you know coaches, athletic training staffs, strength conditioning coaches are some of the most underpaid and overworked people in the world and we understand they have limited time but it's definitely worth the investment from both a risk reduction perspective and a performance perspective i i, I agree completely and any coach who's listening to this and, and kind of thinking through how this might fit into their program and do i have time to incorporate it do i have the expertise obviously for one if you don't have the expertise bring it in it's out there um but I'll tell, I, I hope it's okay that I tell a quick story. I got to give uh, a shout out to one of the teams that we worked with. We worked with a, uh, a girls soccer team. And this is kind of um, really driving your point home, I think, especially when it comes to the implementation. Like, you know, they, they might understand, but how are, are the coaches keeping up with this? Is, is this, is there actually fidelity in the implementation of whatever is set out? Um, Jim Burnside. He's an active, I don't know how old he is. He doesn't, he's not very old, uh, you know, an active coach already in the hall of fame one, you know, he's, he, he wins a lot. He's a girls soccer coach in Illinois. We've actually had him on the podcast. He's a wonderful guy. He, um, he already had a successful program and then decided for a variety of reasons. Um, one absolutely being a strong desire to compete and win another absolutely recognizing that the, the population he was working with, the adolescent girls were at this in, increased risk that you've mentioned. He was like, we are going to incorporate strength and conditioning. It, you know, this was my, my first year or second year in, on the job. And he just fully bought in. And, I, and, and to the point where uh, there were at least, I think there were two girls, at least one, who said, um, I don't like doing this, you know, and, I, and I'm not, I don't mean to, I, I'm not talking badly about anyone in all of this, of course, is made saying anonymous, but, um, but two of their le leading returners in, in terms of goals. So a, a lot of goals between these two girls, as I remember it, um, they said, we don't want to be part of this, but he said, well, this is what the program does now. And those girls ended up not coming back the following year. So he, he was essentially willing to, for the sake of his team over time, uh, turn down, you know, delay of gratification, you know, turn away these, these goal scorers. 
And uh, it's amazing. And, and there should be a little line like results not typical because in, in the following years after this had been part of their culture, a new part of their culture, uh, there was an alignment of that culture, the commitment to strength and conditioning and great talent. And, those grew, and, and he had teams that went on to win three consecutive state championships uh, and then finished runner up the next two um, in PKs both times. Just like, yeah, I mean, just a, an era of dominance. And I don't think, you know, it's like I said, it's all got to align. The culture, the, you know, all, all these other things with, it's all got a lot of talent, great coaching, but, but he is maybe too nice to myself and my staff uh, in saying that if nothing else, back into the season, we've got more girls on the sideline with us. You know, we, you know, we're, like you said, we're just not losing people quite as often. Um, and I think, again, I just, I, I, I hope people know that this is something that they're sort of scraping the surface of or knocking on the door of that. Um, and they are compelled by performance that there's a pretty good track record where there's neutral girls, soccer, Galesburg, basketball, like this stuff works. The story is out there, but it does take a coach committing fully. Especially, especially in girls and women. Because yep. number one, very often they haven't been exposed as much as boys and men have, but also boys and men have that huge through adolescence, that huge testosterone spurt that girls don't have that create right. that greater muscle mass. And so if you look on the background and we've done these studies and published them over and over, boys get that spurt. And if you look at it, background with boys over say a two three month off season yeah you're you're only going to over their testosterone spurt you're, you're kind of challenged to do better than that so you might get three five seven percent boost in their performance measures but girls because they don't have that baseline increase Mm -hmm. Oh, you're going to get minimum 10, 20, and mm -hmm. some performance measures, a hundred percent increases in their performance. Mm. I mean, and that's so gratifying when you, you know, I, I worked with boys, mostly wrestlers and power lifters over years and years, and we'd work hard to get five, 10% increases. Right. Whereas right. as soon as we jumped in with the, the girls and women's teams, we're getting 10 to a hundred percent increases. And, I can tell you that's extremely gratifying for us. It's also extremely, extremely gratifying for the athletes, right? But also the p coaches and the parents—they're going to see it across the board. It, yeah. Once you're in there and you're doing it, they, they're going to be adherent to it, especially the athletes are, because right. they're going to feel the difference. They're going to see the difference, and then they're going to talk the coaches into doing it. We've always as well tried to incorporate at least one assistant coach who's had those kind of, usually in, in every team of female soccer or basketball players, you have one coach mm -hmm. who's torn her ACL twice. And they're the right. ones that, you know, they buy in right away. They understand the, how devastating not only having that first ACL, but really that second ACL is that gets into your body right. and your head. Um, so they, they, so you really get a push from people like that. We always try to get them involved. It's a challenge, but there are ways you can get people involved, get them instituting it, keep them compliant and adherent to what you're doing. I like it. And that's the key. And it, it, it's definitely cultural. I have to, I'd like to circle back just because culture is so difficult at this level. 
to the NFL for just for a second. I wonder, do you think, again, I've got a theory, but you're the doctor, so you tell me where I'm wrong, please. The, um, I, I would imagine, and I would hope for the sake of these men and, and just the sport, that uh, the injury rate starts to decrease. Uh, I also hope that alongside of that, it doesn't uh, devalue the point that you are making and that we ascribe to, uh, to, to a coach who might say, well, look, it's not happening anymore. It was a fluke week one or two. You know, is it safe to assume that perhaps by week six, we have sort of acclimated a little bit and, and that we, the, the training has sort of caught up with the play and that there'd be a natural downturn. Is that a safe prediction? Well, well that would be, so you're going, that's another uh, hypothesis, which is what we've done is because we had a very limited, very low exposure preseason. Are right. we just shifting that preseason into the in season? Right. Maybe we don't know. Again, other than 100 years ago, these are unprecedented times. So we'll see. You you would hope so. You would hope hope once these load levels are up, once these exposures are up and the Mm -hmm. body is adapting and they're back in with their team, their strength coaches. Yeah, I I would go with that hypothesis. My guess is, especially in the second half of the season, so if you take a regular length preseason, four weeks, yeah. you know, once we get past that first four five weeks, then hopefully we will see a drop. Mm-hmm. And you, you do tend to see that in a season. They tend to drop off over time. Right. That, that would be my hypothesis as well. But, but let's see how it turns out. Well, exactly. And that's the cool part about science is you, you, you look and record, you can predict, but then you just, then you just got to be honest with what you see. I'm wondering now also, and I'm, I, I have in my mind sort of the naysayers and I want to sort of speak to them so they recognize just how important this preparation would be for safety athletes. Um, that I wonder if that because there's increased awareness because of just how devastating last weekend was that if the coming weeks if there's just a touch more caution from some players, I, I, I wonder. So, you know, I, either way, whether it's some sort of um, acclimation or in, an increased amount of caution, if the numbers, if the injury rates go down in these coming weeks, I don't think that undercuts the point that has been made, right? These, are, these might just be other things happening alongside it. You know, I would love from a, you're talking about measurement perspective. I love, I would love to take, out of Melbourne, Kate Webster and Julian Feller's ACL RSI. It's the return to sport index. Mm-hmm. Give that baseline to all the NFL players and see what the fear level, anxiety levels are in these players. Yeah. You know, obviously some of them had really high levels because some opted out for the season. They right, said, right. And yeah, maybe they were the smart ones. Um, but I would guess after having seven ACL tears, there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety amongst these players, if not the coaches and owners. Right. I mean, these, these guys, I mean, think these guys are, you know, I, I'm an Ohio State guy. Nick Bosa, you know, you know, both of the Bosa brothers are big deals to, to us right. Ohio people. And, right. yeah, I mean, that, you're talking a 20-plus million dollar a year player, and he's the, he's the rule. Because basically, you know, he's 
he's had one on the opposite side. Your, your risk is about a third higher. Once you've had one ACL tear, your risk is, and so you have to listen to that science. So Nick should have known my risk of having another ACL tear is a third higher than my teammates who've never had an ACL tear before. So he should be doubly, if not triply in, involved in doing ACL reduction, neuromuscular training in the off season and preseason. It's a big loss. It's, it's a huge loss, man. And I was so sorry to hear about that and, and Saquon as well. And part of me is because whether they were doing it right or not, I just, I guess I was under the assumption that those guys, they're, I mean, they're workers, you know, the, um, you, oh, and no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And then Saquon, even though, even though he's a Penn Stater, <laughs> I had to feel very badly about that too. One of the best guys in the league, you know, right, right. tough, tough losses. Classic. Yeah, sure. Nick had a more weirder, you know, hyper kind of flexion, mm-hmm. uh, multiple ligament. Probably he probably my guess is terrible triad with that kind of mechanism. He, he probably had an ACL and MCL and a medial meniscus injury with that mm-hmm. rotation he had. Whereas Saquon had that classic non-contact val- right. dynamic valgus and probably has an ACL. And uh, but but it, it, these guys at least nine months participation time and they're going through grueling grueling rehab right you know there's the you know the the mythical adrian peterson who returned from an acl injury and everybody says oh he came back six months later he did not he came back it was almost exactly nine months after he tore his acl yeah uh and you know the exception very often proves the rule that Right. Most people are going to, most people are going to be out at least nine months. If they're smart, they're going to, they're going to even take longer because it, you can't rush mother nature. It takes time to heal the, you know, damage to the joint. It takes time for that ligament, which, which is the tendon that they put in there to re-ligamentize. It takes time for those bone bruises and cartilage damage to occur. And they, you know, cartilage doesn't really heal on its own. So, you know, you've got a damaged joint and it, it's going to take mother nature. It actually takes, if you look at even subtle measures of kinesthesia, proprioception, strength, it takes two years actually to recover. These guys aren't really usually the same in that, in that first year back. So, I, I am, I'm, I've, I've known that and I'll, I'll, I'll share with you that I have a firsthand experience uh, with it now this summer. I, I mentioned I played, a, I played a lot of football. I played 16 seasons of football and man, I am so grateful for, for the way I got through it. You know, I, I trained hard. That was like the distinguishing factor. I was lucky to not be super talented. So I had to train. So I, you know, uh, that worked well on an injury front, but I ran into something this summer and messed up my knee a little bit. I had a, a nothing crazy, but the bone bruising I didn't realize was going to be as uncomfortable as it was. Uh, I messed up my PCL a little bit, and then I, I chipped a piece off the back of my kneecap and, and you know, busted, had got some stitches and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a good impact injury. Um, but honestly, I almost, I, I almost walked to the hospital that day. I just, I didn't think anything of it. I was like, okay, I'll be fine that happened in July 
And here we are at the back end of September and I'm like, my one leg does not look the same as, as my other. I'm still learning to, you know, slowly trying to get a rhythm of a job, just like telling, telling uh, my effort. Reflex reflex inhibition. Yeah. You've got all these neural reflexes that are saying there's something wrong on that side. Yep. And basically what you've got is a open circuit to your spine, which is, turning on inhibitory neurons and that muscle is atrophying and yeah it's to fix that neural circuitry also takes quite some for the body to heal itself takes a couple years very often to respond I decided uh, I'm going to have to dunk a basketball at the back end of this. This is my goal. I've never done that before. So like, <laughs> Just that, land evenly on both legs. Don't, exactly. Don't, don't put all the force on your good, on your good one. That, that can be disastrous as well, is what, is what a lot of people do. I am, it's given me some great insight. And I, um, you know what, actually, you're right. I'm really glad to hear you say that because one of the most helpful um, moments in, in my own personal recovery, and this is sort of aligned with what we're talking about, I hope. Uh, I don't want to just be indulgent on my own story here. But uh, a friend of mine who's a physical therapist was like, uh, you just, it, it, you, you have to assume six months to, to anything close to normal. You just have to kind of get that in your head. Because I think what I was doing was I was, I was trying to go on a jog. I was so desperate to feel like it was normal again uh, that I was, that I was aggravating it a little bit and getting some swelling and that would put me back in limited range of motion and all this stuff. So he's like, just put six months in your head, even for, you know, thank, thankfully it wasn't something like an ACL, but right. The mental side psychology of the is a big part of the knee is a big part of the knee injury. That's why I said, I'd love to have that ACL RSI data because the site data is it, believe it or not, even us athletes use our brains and, and our brains can go un, undeterred, but uncalibrated and disturbed to the level we don't real we don't consciously realize. And it happens to almost everyone. I, I, I totally agree. So here's, here's why I think that was the perfect comment because, um, we, um, we, we sort of full circle, we're, we're going to have to run, but I want to invite you to, uh, come back whenever you want. I really enjoyed this and I feel like we're just scratching the surface kind of, I think there's a lot. Absolutely. That'd be fun. I'd love to do it. I'll plan on it, Jim. I I think it'll be, I I think a lot of people are going to get, not only am I enjoying it, I think a lot of listeners are going to get a lot out of it. So Wonderful. Well, best wishes with your knee and best wishes with all your wonderful efforts and all the things you're doing. I appreciate you, man. Do you need business cards? Do you need flyers, posters, custom thank you notes, or any sort of stationery to take your business to the next level? If so, then you've got to see the good people at Mighty Printing. They've got two locations. One of them's up north in Glencoe, Illinois. The other is right in the heart of Chicago on 180 West Washington Street. They do most of the printing for the Good Athlete Project, and we just could not do our business without them. They've also worked with teams like the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago Blackhawks. They've worked with Let Us Entertain You Restaurant Group. They do holiday cards. They do wedding cards. They help you. They help you not only celebrate special occasions, but make them that much more special. And like I said, if you are a small business owner or a large business owner, 
they will give you the sort of personalized service combined with incredibly high quality goods. You just can't find that combo, honestly, anywhere else. Find them online at mightyprint.com. That's M-I-T-E print, P-R-I-N-T dot com. And on Instagram, same thing, at mightyprint, M-I-T-E print. And tell them the Good Athlete Project sent you.